It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is another interesting episode of the Remnant Podcast. You're about to hear a voice that does not sound like mine, but is actually quite familiar. For complicated reasons, I could not host today's episode, um, but I very much wanted to do it because I'm a huge fan of Barry Strauss, who's not only one of the leading scholars of ancient Rome and the entire world, um, but he's also just an incredibly charming, decent guy, and I hung out with him recently at Cornell where he teaches, and I told him when his new book comes out, I definitely want to have him on for a podcast, and it just turned out that the only day, the only window he could do it where he was in Washington, D.C., I just couldn't, and we wanted to honor the commitment. We wanted to do what help we could for the book, and because Jack is Jack Butler, my uh, sidekick, M.U.N.S.S., uh, Chief of Staff, Major Domo, you choose the label. Um, producer, well, that's a good one too. Uh, sound engineer um, is a bit of a geek on these on this stuff and is interested in this stuff. Uh, he volunteered to uh, sit in the host chair and and talk to Barry Strauss. So I thank him for it. I hope it turns out well, and uh, I hope you like it. And I hope he doesn't get too comfortable in my chair. And with that, uh, here's uh, Jack Butler and Professor Strauss. Arma virum quaecana. Oh, nope, that's not right. Uh, Gallia est omnis divisa in parte... Nope, crap, that's not right either. Uh, <laughs> Salvete auditores carissimas. Uh, that's Latin for greetings, dear listeners. And this is not, in case you haven't figured it out already, Jonah Goldberg. This is Jack Butler, the his erstwhile amenuensis to get some Greek in there. And you're probably wondering why you're hearing my voice instead of Jonah's. Uh, frankly, I'm wondering the same thing. Before I tell you why, though, I should mention that we have uh, no sponsor today except for NR Plus, or more about it later. But anyway, the reason is that Jonah is currently indisposed, and... He really wanted to do a podcast with our guest today, but he can't. Uh, and so, in perhaps a fitting stroke for a podcast that's going to be about uh, Roman emperors, there has been a bit of a... He, Jonah let a bit of a coup happen. I have taken over the remnant for the day uh, to interview one Barry Strauss. Barry is the uh, is professor of history and classics, Bryce and Edith Bomar, professor in humanistic studies at Cornell University, and the author of Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Hello. 
Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you for joining the Jonah-less remnant <laughs> episode. This is a first and possibly a last. We'll see how it goes. There's so. nothing better than a hijacking, so I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> that's, that's how people always greet me on, on the plane. Uh, <laughs> I always get in trouble afterward. Couldn't resist. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, it's perfectly fine. As I said, it's, it's a fitting stroke for this episode. Because Absolutely. It's, yeah, Roman, uh, Roman imperial history is all about coups and power, power struggles and... That's what the remnant is now too. <laughs> um, so we'll see. We'll see if Joan is able to wrest power back from me after I get get we'll comfortable see, yeah. in this chair. Um, but yeah, so I've I've already as I've already hinted pretty blatantly, uh, you've written a book, uh, Ten Caesars, about the Roman Imperial Period, and uh, why? So why did you? And you're obviously what? So what are the other books that you've written about? Sort of the classical world. Yeah, most of them. Yeah. Uh, so what what has drawn you to this uh, to write this book about this era specifically? Pop culture. <laughs> it's good motivation. <laughs> Back in the 1970s, when I was in graduate school, uh, I watched the uh, the the British TV classic I Claudius, uh, Robert Gray's novels. Yes. And uh, of course, I had had some knowledge about Roman emperors already, but graduate studies focused on systems, trends broad developments uh, rather than on the nitty-gritty and gossipy details of the emperor's lies. But I always thought I wanted to go back to that. And um, frankly, I think that Rome is really irresistible for Americans because uh, it it seems to foreshadow everything that or, – or many things that we've done and that who we are, but in kind of a crazy mirror. So I, I just find that really – Really hard to resist. Yes, and I mean you're not the only one because this this stuff still sells. Oh yeah, as I hope your book does. Thank you, me too. Um, so is this the, the title? Is this an intentional reference to the Twelve Caesars by Suetonius? It is. It, it is. It is a bit of a ripoff of the Twelve Caesars <laughs> by Suetonius. Well, that's okay. He's he, he's he's dead. He's been dead for a long time. He's he not is. going to sue you. No, he's not going to sue me. And um, I thought it might create a bit of a buzz. Why ten Caesars as opposed to twelve Caesars? It's partly because we're an attention deficit uh, society, <laughs> and I think um, it kind of reminds me of so the um, the book, uh, the movie Three Days of the Condor. Have you heard of that? I have. Yeah. So the it's based on a book called Nine Days of the Condor. That's fascinating. <laughs> so the, for for the Hollywood treatment, it had to be cut down. So this is, <laughs> this is, you're giving you're giving the Roman emperors the the Hollywood treatment. They would have settled for nothing less. Let's yeah, exactly. So why why did you choose the ten emperors that you did choose? Because I mean, in reading the book, you do mention. At, at least you'd give at least a paragraph to pretty much every emperor in this period. There are more than 10. Right. Uh, but you focus on 10. So why did you choose the 10 that you did choose? Good question. So first of all, I, I decided to bookend the book with Augustus and Constantine. Mm-hmm. Could have started it earlier with Julius Caesar, and I could have gone quite a bit later to Theodosius, or the end of the empire in the West, or to uh, to Justinian and Theodora. But mm-hmm. I kind of thought Augustus and Constantine made – uh, very nice bookends. Augustus is the founder of the of the Roman monarchy, and Constantine is the refounder. Uh, Augustus, the pagan emperor, uh, Constantine, the first Christian emperor, and Constantine creates Constantinople. And even though it's not entirely clear he meant it to be a new capital, it becomes a new capital. It becomes uh, for a long, long time a greater city than than Rome. 
Also, as a practical matter, if I'd gone much longer than Constantine, you would I would have needed more than 10 emperors. They're just too many. Mm-hmm. Even though most Roman emperors were no great shakes, most of them, frankly, were failures, there's quite a bit more than 10 if you want to take the history beyond 350 years, which is more than enough, I think. Yeah. Um, I left out Caesar, uh, first of all, because he wasn't really – he's a different kettle of fish as a dictator for life rather than an emperor. Um, and, and Augustus was very insistent that he was creating a new regime, but also for the perhaps not as good reason that I had just written a book about the death of Caesar and I kind of wanted to pick up where I left off in that book. So Augustus seemed to me a natural starting point. But to your question, so why these 10? So five of them chose me. If you're going to go from Augustus to Constantine, you pretty much have to include, um, Hadrian, um, as well. He's the, the, the center point between these two emperors chronologically, but also thematically because he is an emperor who is looking eastward like Constantine, but still has a foot in the west like Augustus. You, uh, would be hard pressed not to include Marcus Aurelius, uh, who is the most saintly of the Roman emperors and known, of course, for the meditations. And finally, my informal survey of just about everybody I knew when I asked them, have you ever heard of any Roman emperors? The one Roman emperor that everybody's heard of is Nero. Yeah. And that told me that Nero had to be in the book. So I start out with five, and how do I choose the others? Well, Tiberius uh, and Septimius Severus were both extremely consequential emperors, and uh, I felt that they really had to be part of the story as well, though neither of them is as easy or as obvious a choice as the other ones. Uh, the other emperors I chose, Vespasian, Trajan, and Diocletian, they're all very important and consequential, but there are others who I could have uh, could have chosen. I certainly could have chosen Caligula as the ultimate bad boy or Commodus as a very well-known uh, bad emperor as well. I found it hard to leave out Aurelian. He is really the one who was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, between uh, Septimius Severus and Diocletian, he is the greatest reformer. He's the one who turns things around um, and he has the remarkable story of Zenobia, uh, which is also kind of hard to, to leave out. So, and he builds the walls of Rome that we can still see today. So if, I, if there's one who I really wished I could have put in, if it could have been 11 Caesars, I would have brought in Aurelian. But the others, I think I chose them because they were consequential or in the case of Nero, because they were famous and infamous. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so I guess I should have started here, but could you just briefly, as briefly as possible, explain how Rome transitioned from a republic to an empire? Because how, how did we get to the point where this 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 entity that's, had, that had existed as a republican in, um, nation, or so if you want to call it a nation, what what changed? What was the, so Julius Caesar was obviously the, the shift. Right. But what, what, what caused that shift to happen? You know, so it used to be that the old cliche explanation, that's a great question, by the way. So the old cliche explanation was that Rome ceased being a republic and became a monarchy, in effect, what we call the empire, because the institutions for governing a city-state were inappropriate for governing an empire. And, you know, for a long time, people said, oh, that's too pat. It's really much more complicated by that. But in the end... 
I think the higher naivete, as my teacher used to call it, uh, is in fact, that's the real explanation for why the republic fell. Uh, it just was too much of a stretch for this city to govern an empire. And the, and the governing class of the city could not wrap its heads around what was needed to do to govern an empire. I mean, Rome as a republic was still governed by a very narrow elite, a small number of families, almost all of them part of the so-called nobility. That is, members of their family had held the highest political offices in Rome for generations. They thought this is the way that this was the natural order. This is the way things were supposed to be. The gods arranged these things for the best people also to have the most power and for them to govern the institutions of an empire, uh, for them to govern tens of millions of people from this very, very narrow base. Uh, within the city, the uh, the citizens of Rome had some political power. It wasn't simply an oligarchy, and there was give and take between a larger group of citizens and this very small governing class. But they just proved incapable of taking into account the needs and desires of the people who they had conquered, and also, perhaps more urgently, the needs and desires of the people who were doing the conquering, namely the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And there is one thing that Caesar had figured out and that the Caesars always understood, and that is you really had to identify the most crucial members of your workforce and make them happy. And in the case of the Caesars, that was the soldiers. And um, the people who uh, – the last Republicans didn't quite get that. They never quite understood that. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the army because in the narrative that you um, create in your book – it often seems like the army is, I mean, it's ob- obviously it's an institution in Roman society, but it's often seems like it's feared by both citizens and by other elites as almost an independent force. So what exactly is the relationship of the army to the rest of Roman society in this imperial period? Is it like, is it, obviously it's needed to um, conquer and to maintain peace, but it, it can often seem in the story that you described that if uh, an emperor f- gets on the wrong side of the army, then the emperor really is not going to last for very long. I think that's true. I mean, Imperial Rome uh, was a society with a very strong civilian infrastructure and with one of the most impressive systems of law in history. And yet, it was also a military monarchy. And in the last analysis, the army was there to create order and to make and unmake emperors. I mean, there was... um, the army had a base in the city of Rome. The Praetorian Guard was there, beginning around 10,000 strong. And they had a camp within uh, within the city. Um, and uh, later on, there are other soldiers who are brought into legionary camps just outside of the city. And everybody knew that to be a successful emperor, you had to have the support of the military. Likewise, the army defended the empire, defended the empire on its borders. And less often, you would have emperors who tried to expand the empire. And there, the army would have to play a crucial role in, in, in conquering outside places. And the army had to be well paid um, mm-hmm. or the soldiers would be unhappy. Now, normally, except for periods of crisis, normally the army was quiescent. Uh, the deal worked. The emperor's paid the troops, the troops were happy, everything was cool. But there would be periods when there were coups and there would be periods when um, emperors would lose their legitimacy and the empire would dissolve into civil wars, uh, which were settled by military means. 
uh, quite violently. Yeah. So, would you say so? As my, I want to ask about the emperor specifically next. So, would you say that pacifying and mollifying the the army is one of the uh, essential characteristics of a good emperor? So, the yes. em- emperors who can't figure that out are not. They're not only going to end up being bad emperors. They're they're not they're not going to have very long tenures either. They're going to end up being dead emperors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. dead emperor is not a good emperor. Well, unless it's it's a deified emperor, right? But as Septimius Severus says on his deathbed to his sons, you know, be harmonious with each other, pay the soldiers, and don't worry about anything else. <laughs> good life advice for everyone, really. That's right, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what what else makes for a good emperor? What 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 separates the good emperors in in your uh, book from the bad ones? Okay. So, uh, first of all, any, any good emperor wants to keep, uh, Rome prosperous, which means investments in infrastructure as needed, ensuring that the grain supply goes to the capital city. It's a city of about a million people. Which I, I just, every time I'm reacquainted with that fact, I find that incredible. Cause that's like a city of a million people today is something that we would be, like, we would recognize as a pretty large place but this is right. 2000 years ago yeah. uh yeah. with a tiny a comparatively tiny world population yeah what uh, you know the empire at its height has 50 to 70 million people so it's not small yeah uh, but still a million is impressive some scholars want to cut it down to six or hundred seven six or six hundred to seven hundred thousand but it's still pretty darn big place yeah still still a big city today yeah so you've got to feed the city you've got to keep things humming. You've got to invest in roads and harbors uh, and all that sort of thing. But, you know, you you also, as an emperor, have to realize that you can't control everything. So you need to have very good people working for you. And particularly, you need to have a good and trustworthy second in command. Uh, as in so many things, Augustus sets the mold. Uh, for decades, he has this guy, Agrippa, a, a companion of his boyhood, uh, who also happens to be a great soldier, which Augustus isn't, and utterly trustworthy. He yeah. doesn't want to take over on his own. Not a, not a fr- frequent combination. Not a frequent combination. <laughs> the other thing you have to do is you have to start out tough and, and then make nice. This is a very Machiavellian principle, and the Roman emperors were Machiavellian before Machiavelli. So Augustus, on his rise to power... Uh, before he becomes quote unquote Augustus, he's kind of ruthless and violent and kills a lot of his enemies in, in civil wars. Once he has established the peace and established himself on the throne, uh, he then, um, switches into kinder, gentler mode. Uh, and he then switches to somebody who's concerned about the welfare and well-being of the Roman people. Uh, and makes nice to the senators, knows their names. Um, he smiles. Um, he's a he's a different kind of creature. Shakes hands, kisses babies. Shakes hands, kisses babies. So what you don't want to do is to start out nice and then have to turn tough. That's not a recipe <laughs> for success. And some of them do that. Tiberius, I guess, this is his successor, does that, and he's hated and vilified mm-hmm. for it. So the other thing that you need to do to be a successful emperor is that you you have to travel a lot. You have to visit different parts of the empire, um, and they do that. You have to be successful at public relations and propaganda, and you have to ensure your own legitimacy. 
Uh, it's interesting that very few of the emperors and even fewer of the successful ones are actually born to the purple. Uh, these are people who usually have to make their way up to the top. Yeah, that was something that in reading your book, I guess I didn't realize to to the the extent to which so many of the emperors kind of were this most successful out of this bizarre meritocracy that yeah. was established. Yeah, that is it's absolutely right. It is bizarre. I mean, Rome's not a democracy, and yet there are elements of meritocracy, and the elite is open in ways that really are quite impressive. I think it's one of the reasons for the empire's success that it's constantly allowing new blood to come to the top, preferably not by violent means, though often by violent means. Uh, the problem with that, though, is that you don't have legitimacy. If you're not the king's son, then how do you have legitimacy? And so um, the emperors have to uh, work at that. For instance, they might deify their predecessor. Mm -hmm. See, the guy who chose me is a god, so I must be pretty good. Uh, in the case of, of, of Hadrian, he even deifies his mother-in-law, uh, which is another way of saying, obviously, I have the gods on my, my side. Also, very impressive given the, like, current <laughs> modern stereotypes about mothers-in-law. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as far as we know, he's the first man in history to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's yeah wow impressive yeah um so what about what what makes the the bad emperors why do they fail though do they just is it because they don't do all of these things that you described yeah the bad emperors kind of get it all wrong or the failed emperors get it all wrong first of all you want to not piss off the senate unduly i mean you're going to have to probably make them angry to some extent because the senators are never happy about the fact they've lost the power they used to have in the Republic. But you want to be sure that you're not overdoing it um, and that you don't leave enemies uh, out to get you, mm -hmm. um, particularly if things start going bad, if you start losing a war uh, abroad, if there's disasters at home, if there's uh, crop failures, if there's famine. Uh, you want to be cautious about that. You also want to be very cautious about your successful generals. You don't want to have any generals who are all too successful while you're sitting in Rome, because that is the recipe for Caesarism. Caesar, after all, marches on Rome after he's conquered Gaul and has just honed this extraordinarily formidable army. So you don't want to allow that to happen. Yeah, if only Jonah had had realized that I was <laughs> that I that I was going to conquer his Rome. That's right, yeah. Oh well, too late. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, so what it, it, I noticed a lot in reading this book that you have to qualify the sources in the sense that this is a this is a hostile source. Right. This is an yeah. this is a, fr a source friendly to this emperor. So how is it that in sifting through these sources, is, isn't there a considerable extent to which what we know about what emperors did and how even that they were rated by their contemporaries is is flavored entirely by, by what we have to work with? And is that has that skewed? Has that skewed our perception of any of these emperors? And how would we know if it had skewed them? Like, is there is it possible that there's one emperor out there who was actually really good, but basically hostile sources took over the historical record and now we have this entirely faulty perception of, of what he did as emperor? That's a really good question about the sources. We always have to assume the sources are hostile. Um, and talking about Roman emperors or really about anything in antiquity, I mean, kind of 
being an ancient historian 101 is starting out by being very skeptical about the sources. So then the question becomes, how can you know what really happened? Mm -hmm. So first of all, sometimes you can't and you have to be honest and say, uh, we can't know. I personally don't find that as disturbing as some people do because I've also studied modern history and I know that sometimes in modern history, we can't really know either. And all you have to do is uh, make a cursory study of American politics and you know that everybody's telling a different story about what happened. Uh, what really motivated people, sometimes it's hard to say. Secondly, as an ancient historian, you want to make yourself an expert on how things worked in the ancient world. So, you know, um, if someone's going to say, this is how far I went in a certain day, this is how the ships worked, this is how the battle was fought, this is how we fed people, you want to make sure that you know enough so that you can say, yeah, that's plausible, or no, that's not the way things worked. Uh, okay. That can't be true. So, you know, you really have to constantly push back uh, against the sources, and you get a sense of just what emperors could and couldn't do. But, yeah, it's a constant... Um, it's a constant push-pull. Struggle might be too strong a word, but it's a constant challenge to try uh, to put things in perspective. What you don't want to do is be quoting the sources and saying, that's it. Yeah, that's what they say, so it's got to be true. It's like kids saying, well, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. You know that's... Yeah, that's that's, an, that's one of Abraham Lincoln's most famous quotes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the... Let, Relatedly, do you think – are there any of these emperors who you think have gotten a bad rap? Like you're actually – the chapter on Nero, I was expecting it – the perception of Nero in modern times is like, oh, there's that crazy guy fiddling while Rome burned. Um, but – and and you, you, you have – you include that or at least the – Right. Uh, at least the most plausible historical right. source of right. that myth. But other than right. that, I, Nero came out a little better in the, your chapter on him than I expected him to. So, yeah, you know, um, there's, one of the reasons I didn't have more bad boy emperors in the book is that there's been revisionism on all of them. Okay. Uh, they've all been uh, purified within an inch of their lives. So all the good old juicy stuff about Nero and Caligula, who you're now supposed to call Gaius, by the way, not Caligula, because his name really was Gaius. Caligula was, is a nickname. Uh, Commodus, uh, Domitian, even Elagabalus. Um, nah, it's not like it used to be. I mean, <laughs> we're now much fairer to them. We realize the sources are, are range between being biased and outrageously biased. <laughs> so um, it's not quite as fun as it it used to be. And Nero, uh, I think probably I was a little harsher on Nero than some of my colleagues are. Um, there's even more of Nero revisionism uh, than I think than I have in my chapter. But it's hard to deny the fact that in some ways he brought Rome good government. He really did. At least in his earlier years, in his later years, things went bad, particularly if you believe as a minority of scholars do, but a respectable minority. They believe that Nero set the fire of Rome, that he purposely set Rome on fire because he wanted to rebuild that, as some of the ancient sources say. Myself, I think that's that's an awfully big claim. Uh, but he he certainly made haste to take advantage of it. Yeah. Uh, so are there any other... Is that your, your hottest... Well, speaking of fire, is that your... <laughs> that your hottest take about uh is there any other besides nero is there, are there any other emperors that you think have gotten a bad rap or conversely any other 
emperors that are perceived as having been good who actually you think, eh, they were actually not so good. Uh, so Tiberius, I think, has a bad rep. Um, you know, Tacitus does a total number on Tiberius and pre- presents him as an evil, mad tyrant. And he was a bit of a tyrant. Um, and after Tiberius died, he's not deified. The Romans do not remember him fondly. But I think Tiberius suffers from the, um, the successor, uh, a trap. Um, Augustus is the founder. Tiberius is the number two. He, Tiberius is playing John Adams to George Washington. And he's playing Tim Cook to Steve Jobs. Um, he's just not going to be as beloved or as larger than life as the founder. But Tiberius does really important work, for better or worse. For worse, he's the guy who just really puts the Senate in its place uh, and he kills off a bunch of senators and persecutes a bunch of senators as a way that August, in a way that Augustus hadn't or had stopped doing. He also uh, gives the Praetorian Guard a permanent barracks in the city of Rome. Uh, Augustus had made it much less formal. Um, he himself rules for the latter part of his reign, not in Rome at all, but from the island of Capri, beautiful place. It is. Um, I've been there. Yeah. Quite nice. It's really nice. And you, if you've, have you been to the ruins of his palace? I think so. I think yeah. I went there. Yeah, you probably have. It's really spectacular. You can see why he didn't want to leave. Um, but much more important, Tiberius is the guy who says, basta. He's the guy who says, <laughs> we're not going to expand the Roman Empire anymore. Augustus had tried to do so. Augustus, you know, had wanted to conquer Germany and famously, he loses three, his general Varus loses his life and three legions, a substantial part of Rome's military manpower, uh, and an ambush in the Tudorberger Woods in, in the year nine. And Augustus dies five years later, but he is revving up for Rome's return. He wants to conquer Germany up to the Elba River. It's Tiberius, who himself had fought in Germany, and by the standards of the emperors, Tiberius was an excellent general, with a lot of military experience. But Tiberius is now an older man when he becomes general, who says, nah, no, no, no more. Enough of this stuff. We're no longer a conquering empire. We are a bureaucratic empire that's going to stand on the defensive. And most of his successors follow in his footsteps. He really uh, sets the mold for most of the future Roman Empire. And it's a very consequential change to, to do this. Um, we see it in the fact that Germany exists. Yeah, it is a separate country. And, no, I will, de- I will not deny that yeah, Germany exists. <laughs> people in Germany speak German. They don't speak French. And one of the reasons is that the Romans never conquered Germany except for the Rhineland, basically. Um, so tremendously consequential. But it also took a lot of pressure off the empire. It meant that it continued to be an, a conquering empire would, would have been immensely expensive and destabilizing. You needed a much bigger army if you wanted to conquer Germany and if you wanted to uh, make deeper inroads into uh, the Parthian Empire, the Iranian Empire. Um, furthermore, um, it would have been very politically destabilizing because the only way to do this would have been to have conquering generals. And as I said earlier, those conquering generals are going to turn around and they're going to march on the capital. So it's a very smart move. The downside, which is a whole other subject we can talk about later if there's time, uh, is that it does raise the question among the Roman elite of what's the purpose of being a noble Roman if it's not to go out there and conquer things, which after all has been the purpose up to then. Yeah. 
So another emperor who I think is, I wouldn't say he's overrated, but I think probably gets, is a more complicated figure than we think of is, is Hadrian. I mean, we think of Hadrian as this great humanist. He gives us the Pantheon and Hadrian's Villa and Hadrian's Wall in Britain, which is rightly seen as a national monument. And for those who know Athens, even the new city of Athens, and he is a great creative genius and a great builder. Uh, but he's also a bit of a tyrant uh, who starts his reign in what might have, might, or might not have been a coup d'etat, unclear. But he arranges for the murder of four of the most prominent and distinguished politicians in Rome because they were totally opposed to his turnabout. His predecessor had made had gone back to being a conquer, making Rome a conquering state with very mixed results. And Hadrian comes back and says, "Eh, no more conquests. We're standing pat." There's a lot of opposition, so he kills off uh, the leading opponents. And towards the end of his reign, he kills off an elderly statesman uh, who he felt threatened his plan for the succession. Um, and Hadrian wasn't too cool to my people, the Jews. I mean, Hadrian is one of the great uh, persecutors. There's a rebellion in Judea, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, and it leads to massive slaughter. Eventually, it's a Roman victory. The rebels give the Romans uh, a run for their money. But in the end, the Romans do what the Romans usually do, is that they successfully put down the uh, revolt with kind of devastating consequences. So I'd say it's impossible not to admire Hadrian in some ways. Uh, but there are other ways in which he's much more complicated uh, figure, not not an either-or sort of person. Okay. That's uh, those are some those are some nice uh, classical world hot takes. <laughs> I'll 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 take those. Um, so you another thing, another uh, interesting thing you do in this book is you you have a lot of uh, pretty uh, direct comparison and analogizing of things that happened in the classical world with things that happen um, or th- things that modern readers would be more familiar with. So a good example of this uh, is when. You write that Hadrian was neither the first nor the last Western statesman to underestimate the degree of outside or the degree of resistance to outside reformers uh, to the Middle East. So are there any other um, good like historical patterns that you think the the Romans sort of initiated or discovered that we can still that we still deal with today or that we can still draw lessons from today? I'm sure you're going to answer yes to this. So basically, uh, asking sure. What are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But I think that all his- it's a great question. Thank you. But all historians think there are things we can learn from the past. Uh, I don't think that history is a lesson book. Um, and we simply, you know, turn to the right lesson and say, ah, this is what you do. This is what the manual says is what you do in these things. But I do think that history repeats itself and that we can definitely learn from the past. I mean, I, I guess I would say two things so to start with a lot of things. One is that the Romans were masters of dealing with change. I mean, um, so, so things didn't stand still. Uh, they were constantly changing. And the Romans, I think, are great examples of how a society can be pragmatic and even ruthless in accepting a degree of change while keeping certain things the same. So, uh, and this, uh, so for example, ultimately the Romans give up on Rome as the capital city. Which is stunning. I didn't realize that, that actually happened. Like yeah, it's stunning. It that's is stunning. We, that's what we think. Yeah. Rome, Rome, well, Roman Empire. <laughs> well, they give up 
They give up on Rome as the capital city. Uh, in the West, the empire is being governed mostly from Milan uh, and then from Trier in Germany, which was Constantine's first capital. Also for a period from Ravenna, um, which is a fantastic place to visit in Italy, even though most tourists don't go, most American tourists right, don't go there. And in the East, from a series of cities, first from Nicomedia, which is nowadays a small city outside of uh, Istanbul, and then from Constantinople, which of course is today uh, Istanbul. Um, not only that, ultimately there are, there cease to be Roman empire emperors in the West. Famously, 476 is the year of the last Roman emperor in the West. But the Roman Empire continues in the East. It continues for about two centuries as a great empire. And then it continues for at least another 800 years as a major regional power. The Eastern Roman Empire, what we call the Byzantine Empire. They always thought of themselves as Romans and they called themselves Romans. They used Roman law. Uh, they had many Roman, um, Customs, even though the language of administration ceases to be Latin uh, and it becomes Greek, nonetheless, uh, they called themselves Roman. Um, and this leaves uh, a trace even in modern Greece and in Byzantine culture. The word in modern Greek for folk culture uh, is Romanness, hmm. which is really weird. Romeocine. Uh, it's kind of like, we don't really have a word in English for it, but like the folk Heart, what the Rome, what the Greek people really are at heart is the that. Volksgeist, perhaps the from the German. Yeah, 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 you got it. So, I mean, I think that's one thing. The other thing that's related to that is that the Romans are, as I said, they have a very open elite, and they're very big on incorporating outsiders. Um, and we see this. I mean, one of the reasons for Caesar's success, I think, and for the success of the emperors, is that. They're not picky like the old nobles. Roman nobles really thought it's the God's will that just these few families govern this enormous empire and anything else will lead to disaster. But the Caesars weren't like that. Augustus himself is only a Roman noble on his mother's mother's side. His father's family and his mother's father's family, they were wealthy people from the Italian uh, hinterland. Uh, you know, August, so Augustus's mother's mother is Julius Caesar's sister. That's his claim to nobility. But she had married the guy who is the equivalent of, you know, somebody who owned a, a bunch of car dealerships outside Rome. <laughs> and her, her, her daughter marries someone who's the equivalent of the guy who owns the local bank. Uh, to someone like Mark Antony, who's a full Roman noble, Augustus is, um, he's, beneath his dignity, you know, um, not worthy of it. And Augustus, the second right-hand man, Agrippa, he's not a Roman. He comes, family comes from Etruria, Tuscany. I mean, they're Roman citizens, but the nobility would look down on people like that. But it's the ability to bring people like that in and to let them have power that, that makes the Romans so flexible. So, uh, the, the Julio-Claudians, the first emperor after Augustus, yes, they do all are descended from the Roman nobility in one form or another. But after Nero, you get almost no emperors who are Roman nobles. Vespasian, um, when the smoke clears, Vespasian becomes his successor. He comes from a family from the Sabine Hills, north of Rome. They have no connection to the Roman nobility. They're local wealthy elites. And his nickname is the Muleteer. Um, the guy who 
makes money in the mule driving business as equivalent of being a truck driving magnate. Again, to the old elite, this is appalling. But it's a recognition on the part of the Romans that you have to reach out and you have to be practical. Uh, and we just see, if you just look at the emperors, you get emperors who come from Spain, you get emperors who come from North Africa, you get emperors who come from Syria, and then you get a lot of emperors who come from the, come from the Balkans. Uh, when Constantine becomes emperor of the entire Roman world around the age of 40, that's his first visit to Rome. He's never set foot in Rome before. He's not descended from the Roman nobility. His father, who rose extremely high, mind you, but his father came from Serbia, from a local family. His mother came from what is today Turkey. Her father was an innkeeper, and she worked in the inn. These are pretty humble beginnings, and the fact that people like that can make it to the top in Rome just tells us how open the society was. I think that's one of the things we can learn from them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the, the fact about Constantine never having been into Rome until what? He was 40. Is that about right? About 40, yeah. That's, that's another thing that I, I did not realize n- until reading your book. And that's just kind of stunning to me. Like, oh yeah, a Roman emperor <laughs> never yeah. actually went to Rome until he was 40. Right. I can't think of a, like a, a, a the American equivalent to that would be, I guess you could, I guess it'd be semi, I guess you could concoct a situation in which an American, someone who became an American president never actually went to Washington, D.C. until becoming president. It's, well, you could. Abraham Lincoln certainly didn't have a whole lot of experience. That's him. true. He's yeah. A one-term congressman. Yeah. So I guess there's – but still, it's just a – yeah. not, it's not something you think would happen. It's not something you'd think would happen. Um, so sadly, getting – we're getting – I want to move toward the end of right. the Roman Empire. Right. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's sad, but – we have a, we have one at least one highlight uh, before, and that's Constantine. Right. So you kind of uh, you you sort of sidestepped. You you mentioned that the debate existed about why Constantine converted to Christianity, right. but I, you didn't quite take a complete side on why you think it happened. So why why do you think it happened? Golly, I thought I did. Um, maybe I misread you, or maybe um, I read too quickly. I think. He was converted. I think he was in sincere. Well, that's what I. Okay, so you think he was sincere. I think so. I mean, you know, within the limits of the fact that the guy was a power politician, mm-hmm. you know, the guy's a power politician who is also a warrior. He's one of the you know most successful uh, soldier emperors, and he's a killer. So you have to we have to be blunt about that. He's not um, a theologian, but he um, he has a vision. It's not what we usually think is the vision that, you know, he sees a sign before the Battle of Mulvian Bridge, which he might have. But even before then, he had seen a halo around the sun when he's in Gaul. Uh, And he goes, uh, when he's going to a temple of Apollo, he consults various priests, including Christian bishops, as to what this means. Um, And he found the most convincing explanation uh, to be the explanation of the bishops, that this was a sign that Christ was speaking to him. Now, you might think this is coming out of left field, but it's really not for two reasons. One, um, Christianity had changed a lot by uh, the late by, – by 300 AD. Um, it had become a religion – it starts out as a religion in opposition to um, the Roman establishment. It becomes a, a religion that is, shall we say, making agreements with the Roman establishment. So it's compromising with the Roman establishment that wants to become – more of a Roman religion, and one of the ways that it does that is that it adopts traditional pagan forms. So, um, uh, one of the ways of depicting Jesus is um, 
as a shepherd, the good shepherd, and that comes from pagan art. Or one of my teachers said that in the ancient world there were just shepherds everywhere. <laughs> there were shepherds everywhere. Yeah. Also, um, the uh, Orpheus, a figure from Greek mythology, uh, is associated with Christ. Finally, Apollo is associated with Christ, and there's a long association of Christ with the sun already by the time of Constantine. It's not okay. that pulled out. Of, it's not a rabbit that's pulled out of a hat. Secondly, there is the interesting question about his mother, Saint Helena. Now, the party line is that. Um, she converts to Christianity after her. She's a pagan. Her son converts to Christianity, and she converts to Christianity. But there are some sources that say, well, actually, she was a Christian first. And there's reason to think that. For one thing, uh, before Constantine becomes emperor, when his father, Constantius, is in charge of the Roman West, Diocletian begins the great persecution. Constantius says, no, 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 I'm not gonna, not, we're not gonna have any persecutions. Uh, we're not gonna have any persecutions. And secondly, Helena comes from a part of the war Roman world that's very heavily Christianized already. So it's not crazy to think that she was Christian, or at any rate, that Constantine has a lot of exposure to Christianity. Uh, before he actually becomes emperor. And you might say, well, why doesn't he become a Christian before? Because the guy's got to make his way at the court of Diocletian, which is persecution central. Um, it's really not going to do for him to become a Christian then. So there are all sorts of reasons to think that Constantine was exposed to Christianity beforehand. Also, we have to remember that in the ancient world, um, there are very few atheists, unless you are really a very committed Epicurean, who's going to be very few people. Um, the choice is not going to be, well, am I going to be secular or religious? It's going to be, what religion am I going to be? And there's this long debate in Rome, a lively debate, that the old gods have failed. Uh, we have emperors who try to bring in new gods. We have Aurelian who tries to establish the cult of the sun. And then we have Diocletian, you know, in the cranky way that Diocletian did things, doubling down saying, no, the Olympian gods really are the thing. And they're angry at us because we are allowing these Christian atheists who don't recognize them uh, to get away with them. We have to pr- cl- we have to crack down on them. So for Constantine to say, no, I see a different religious path as the one to follow, um, it has huge consequences, but it makes a whole lot of sense within the context of the time. Yeah, and and one thing that you wrote uh, in favor of the the conversion being a sincere one is that, I mean, in, in hindsight, it it seems like this this almost like preordained thing that Constantine would convert, but. At the time, it wasn't obvious that Christianity would become the force that it is now. No, it's not. I mean, some people say, ah, he put, you know, he, uh, he made the smart move. I don't know that it was a smart move. I think it was a gutsy move. Uh, it was a risky move. It wasn't clear that Christianity would succeed. It's true that the church had shown a lot of resources. It already had built up an infrastructure by this period and it had responded, although it bent under the grace persecution. It didn't break. Uh, and that was very impressive to a lot of people as well. But I think Constantine was taking a risk. Uh, but many emperors took risks. The other thing I have to say is, again, we've got to remember that he was a politician. And we don't usually put the words sincere and politicians together in the same <laughs> sentence. So I think we have to remember that as well. Yeah, it's always worth remembering. That's one yeah. thing that does not change in all of history. No, it does not. No. <laughs> um, so... Now that we've now that we've broached the subject of Christianity, uh, right. you you take issue with uh, Edward Gibbon, the, the the author of the famous uh, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire's uh, right. 
diagnosis as it's the main reason for its fall as being the introduction of Christianity, which somehow, I don't know, I guess divided the souls of the empire and right. made them weak. Right. So you think that's, that's bunk? Yeah, I think it's bunk. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense because the eastern part of the empire was more Christian than the west and the eastern <laughs> part survived. Yeah. So it just doesn't make any sense. Besides which, as we've seen from Constantine, uh, Romans had no problem being Christian and also being soldiers. Also, um, as one of my graduate students is working on uh, Cornell, one of our graduate students, I'm not a supervisor, uh, he's working on a really interesting dissertation about how after the conversion of Constantine, Christianity really adopts military language mm. uh, as if to say, hey, don't worry, guys, you know, you can be Christians and be soldiers. And we know that there's... As was later revealed issue. in the song, Onward Christian Soldiers. Yeah, no, <laughs> you see a lot of it then. I think, you know, some... Uh, there's more, I think we're on firmer ground if we want to take a variant of this and say it's certainly a factor that there are parts of the Roman Empire that become demilitarized, no place more so than Italy. I mean, Italians just stop serving in the military and the legions are recruited elsewhere. They're particularly recruited in northern Europe, in the Balkans and in the Danube River Valley. So it's not the Italians, much less the Romans, fighting for themselves, but rather citizens and not sometimes non-citizens coming from other parts of the empire. However, I don't think even that really explains why the empire fell. Well, why did the empire uh, fall? So why did the empire <laughs> fall? Well, a couple of things. For one thing, the pressure really uh, increased on the Romans, partly because the Germans lear- are unconquered and they learn a lot from the Romans over the centuries. I mean, they adopt Roman technology and Roman discipline and organization. Mm-hmm. So they are able to compete with the Romans. Secondly, they have a lot more pressure on them uh, from uh, people uh, like the Huns, like the, the most extreme case, but others who are pushing westwards and are pushing them uh, into the into the Roman Empire. Uh, third, um, the Romans really don't have the luxury of messing around when they're under this pressure. But instead, uh, there's a series of bad emperors and bad rulers in the late 4th and 5th centuries who are just proved devastating for the West, and they, they prove devastating losses for the Western Empire. Um, I think the Romans, if they'd wanted to keep the West, would have had to have made an extraordinary effort. Even then, they might not have succeeded. Uh, but the challenges were were very, very great. You know, I see it in some ways. Uh, here, I'll make a terrible analogy, if I if I might. But in some ways, I won't stop you. To France in 1940, was it preordained that France would be defeated by Nazi Germany in uh, in, in the fall of France? Well, it wasn't preordained, but the French would have had to make a really very, very, very major effort to be able to compete with um, a military machine um, like like Nazi Germany. So um, the Germans invading the Roman Empire were not Nazis, far from it. Um, and this is, every situation in history is different. But it re- would have required a, a huge effort on the part of the West. There's also, and this is more speculative, but I don't think it helped the Western Empire that there were now Romans who could say, well, you know, we're doing great in the East. If the Western Empire doesn't make it, that's unfortunate. Yeah, at one but. point, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, the Western Im- imperial sort of accoutrement are sent. They're sent to Constantinople. Uh, yeah, as almost like a sign of giving up. Yeah. And the Eastern emperors try to, um, they try to reconquer the West. 
but they fail. I mean, they, they have some success under Justinian, but in the long term, they're, it's, it's just too, uh, too heavy a lift. Again, there's, there, uh, eventually there's also pressure from, uh, from the Arabs, um, who are, you know, immensely impressive militarily and ultimately the Normans as, as well. So, uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of competition. One other factor is, uh, again, the Germans who invade the Roman Empire aren't Nazis and, uh, they try in some ways to run post-Roman kingdoms in the West. Uh, they're employing Roman bureaucrats. They're using Roman law. The Latin is continuing. There's certainly going to be some people in the West who say, them's the breaks, but life, <laughs> life goes on. It's not so bad. Oh, bloody, oh, bloody. Yep. Um, all right. So I think now that we've caught, now that we've, now that we're done with Roman history. <laughs> no, obviously this is something that people are going to keep talking about forever. Right. And we might, well, actually, I would like to ask you about that in a bit, but first I should mention our sponsor. Uh, but we don't have one, as I said. Oh, uh, well, we kind of do. NR Plus. Let's talk about NR Plus. Yes, that's right. This is a Jack Butler ad read. And uh, I'm not... The last time I read the NR Plus ad, I, I had this this semantic debate about whether I should use the first-person plural or not. I'm just going to use it this time. Um, whatever. Uh, we would like to say that NR Plus... It's, think of it as the royal we. Uh, it's a lot more than a digital, digital subscription. And it truly is. When you become an NR Plus member, not if, when, you of course get unlimited access to the National Review Digital Magazine. Uh, that means, I mean, it goes without saying, uh, that, but I said it anyway. Uh, that means you don't get the paywall when you want to read National Review Magazine on your computer or mobile device. Paywalls, man. They're everywhere, um, but not with NR Plus. Uh, you get total access to the latest issue and to all the issues in our 10-year archive. Uh, but NR Plus is more than a digital subscription. I'm really having trouble with the word digital today for some reason. It really is a membership. When you join NR Plus, you get access to our members-only Facebook group. That's a place where you and other NR Plus members can share your thoughts with all us editors and writers over at National Review. Okay, brief aside here, I deeply resent the internet convention of using over at instead of just at when referring to another website while you are on a website. The internet is, a, it, it's not a, it's, it's not physical. There's no over to it. It's just at, just say at. There's no, you're not going anywhere. You're just clicking to another tab or something. Uh, it's always bothered me, but everyone does it. Um, but I have, here's my, now that I have a platform, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stand up on my soapbox while I have the chance. All right, getting, getting down from the soapbox now. Uh, it's a great perk for everyone involved. I mean, frankly, if you had a th- if you had a thought like that, I'm sure you could share it in the NR Plus members only Facebook group. I cannot promise how that thought would be received there, but you could probably share it. Um, anyway, it's a uh, it's a great perk for everyone involved. You get to speak your mind about uh, your random pet peeves if you want um, to all of us at National Review, and we get important feedback from our most dedicated readers. It's a great deal. Uh, really one of the best deals I've ever seen. Um, maybe the best deal of all time. Uh, we also have started conference calls featuring NR writers, editors, and special guests. Only NR Plus members get the call-in info, and these are really great conversations that you won't want to miss, unlike most conference calls. <laughs> oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, there's also commenting. Uh, most internet commenting is basically uh, a sewer or perhaps a chud, 
Um, but only only NR Plus members can comment on the site, which makes for a much more elevated commenting experience, to say the least. And to say the most, uh, no, I'm not going to say the most. That would take too long. Uh, and get this: when you join NR Plus and are logged into the site, you will see up to 90% fewer ads there. In particular, you will see zero ads within articles. Uh, so when you're reading what you came to the site to read, your distractions will be minimized, unless you have a pet monkey or something. But we can't do anything about that. Um, you got to make up your mind about that. There's a lot more to the NR Plus program, but those are some key takeaways. So why not join today? It really is a terrific deal, and we have some great first-year pricing in place. So you'll want to act now. Here's what to do about this. I can't. Whatever, whatever else is going on in your life, I can't really help you with. Uh, go to nationalreview.com/plus. That's nationalreview.com/plus, not the nationalreview.com/plus. It's just National Review, not the National Review. And there you can read about everything this membership has to offer. And then just click Join Now to see all your options. That's NR Plus, folks. NationalReview.com slash plus. Oh, I think I emphasized that wrong. Uh, whatever. Um, NationalReview.com slash plus. Uh, okay. Now that I've done that, I want to ask you some... I want to move into some more general questions sure. that your book sort of covers... Um, obliquely, but not directly. Uh, first off, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> I had to. I just had to. I had to m- yeah. make that um, that Life of Brian reference. Right. Uh, but speaking of Life of Brian, what movie do you think uh, best or most accurately depicts the Roman world? Because there are a lot, and some of them, some of them get things kind of wrong, uh, but some of them get things less wrong. Accurately, ooh, I'm not sure that any of them really accurately predicts the Rome, uh, depicts the Roman world. I mean, I think there were some really nifty details in uh, HBO's Rome. Or okay. We call it in the U.S., a different name in, in, in Britain. But um, like showing slaves just sleep. The slaves didn't have any quarters to sleep in. They were sleeping <laughs> on the master's floor and not paying attention if the master's uh, uh, was having an affair with, with, with someone. Um, I think that's really kind of accurate about the uh, Roman life and also just the sense you got of squalor in Rome, this teeming imperial capital. I think that was pretty accurate as well. Um, I myself am partial to Quo Vadis. I don't think okay. it's really very accurate. Uh, but I, I think maybe it does get a sense of the outrageousness of the Roman ruling class. I mean, one thing if, if, for people who are lucky enough to visit Rome, I think it's just kind of amazing to walk uh, along the Tiber uh, and just to walk to the, the – you're in kind of a normal city. And then you come to Hadrian's tomb and you go to the Forum and you see this central area that's clearly a stage set. And yeah. that's what it was in antiquity. The Romans just had this sense of of drama uh, and they were selling a product uh, of the power and the dignity and the majesty of Rome. So in a certain sense, I think Hollywood always gets it right because Rome was Hollywood huh. <laughs> without a doubt. And another thing to, that you probably think about in walking along the Tiber is all of the dead bodies that are, <laughs> that are in there. Yeah, uh, one tries not to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, now, now, now any, any listener will have no choice but to think about them. So is there any, I'll put it to you in the converse. What, what, what is the worst misconception about, about, Rome that you think popular culture has foisted upon us? Oh, there are so many, but I think, 
Uh, one is the just that it was all divine decadence and peel me a grape. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was a certain amount of decadence, but uh, the emperors, especially the good ones, were pretty darn hardworking, and they tended to uh, work themselves into an early grave. Um, I mean, I think the second one probably is decline and fall, um, the notion that, you know, you have these noble Romans and they're going on for centuries and something bad must have happened. Like they went, they flipped from being Romans to being Christians, for example, something like that. Um, uh, and, you know, if only they had paid attention, um, they would have been able to keep their empire. I think more realistically change happens and it's all every successful country has to um, engage in a debate in which you start at saying, what do you want and what will you settle for? <laughs> I mean, the Romans might have wanted for things to never change from the way they had been in the days of Cato the Elder. Uh, but that wasn't real. That wasn't realistic. They had to make changes. And I think the Republic fails in a way, it's, way because they weren't willing to make those compromises. The empire is successful because it is willing to make those compromises. But the way it works is just different than you think. I mean, for us, I think it'd be really hard for us to imagine America continuing as a great country if we had to give up half of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody would really mind if we had to give up Washington. No offense to this great No, country. none taken. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's really hard to imagine. And yet, I mean, the Romans show that Okay. <laughs> yeah. If that's what it takes, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty. Hmm. That, yeah, I, I, you're, that, that would be considered a great, there'd be a great tumult or, or uh, yeah. it would be a new era. And I guess we, that is kind of considered a new era in Roman history too. But, sure. Well, it is. Um, but yeah, you're, I think that's, that's, that's right. Um, so this is a, this is a more off the wall question. Sure. But it's actually kind of germane to the book still because you mentioned, Every once in a while, um, you you reference a um, a work that we only have a fragment of, or that has yeah. been lost. Right. Yeah. So, which of these? I, I'm told by a, a classics professor of my acquaintance that this is like this one of the saddest things to know about if you're a, if you're a classics professor to know that there are lost works out there. Yeah. That's especially the ones that sound incredible, but that we uh, that we don't have any of. Um, so true. Which is the one that you – do you have a specific one that you would most like to have survived into the present? Well, yeah. Let's say make for the many, but let's say Augustus's memoirs would have been really interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. one you reference in the book. Um, there's yeah. a historian uh, active in the age of Julius Caesar named Asinius Pollio who writes about uh, the last years of Caesar and the transition to Augustus. I wish we had his work. That doesn't exist either. Um Trajan's memoir is gone too. We only have a sentence of that. A sentence. I, I don't really mind that we don't have Trajan's memoir so much. Yeah, it's, I, you have you meant you give us that sentence in the book, right? Yes. What is it? It's very it's very terse. Something about a military campaign. Uh, is that right? Yeah, uh, I forget the words. It's about the conquest of Dacia, modern Romania, and something like from Barrow's Beam we went to. I don't remember the name of the place. Yeah, but it's just a, a one sentence description of like of a, of a of one action in a military campaign. That's right. Yeah. I wish we had Julius Caesar's letters. We have very few of those, uh, but it would have been nice to have. Yeah. It would have been nice to have more of those. Yeah. I mean, frankly, it's amazing that any of this stuff survives at all. It is amazing. Um, we should, I mean, obviously, 
I'm sure you and and others of your profession are grateful that we have what we do. But yes, at the same time, it's very, it's just very sad to see like the the stuff reference that sounds like it would be really amazing to have. Um, how, how do you so? How do we even know certain of these things exist at all? Is it just the the references? Can we, can we know that they're they're uh, like for Augustus's memoirs? Are we pretty certain that if that those are referenced, that that's something that probably existed? Oh yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think that people made up references to non-existent works. These are uh, people who want to have credibility with the public and with other scholars and writers, so they'll say as Augustus says in his memoirs, and then they quote them. So we yeah. actually have about a dozen, maybe a little bit more than a dozen brief quotations from Augustus's memoirs. And we get some, we have some sense of what they covered and what he argues in them. So, okay. Yeah. So speaking of what we have, what has survived from the Roman world, I think that, and this is something again that comes up in your book. It's, it seems to me that Romans, that the perception is that Rome didn't have quite as impressive a a cultural output as as classical Greece did, and I think Romans, at least some of the ones that you quote in, in this book, they seem a little self conscious of that. Some of them even engaged in what we would today call cultural appropriation of <laughs> of Greece and try to they start growing beards and whatnot. Yeah. Um, do you think that there is? Uh, I mean, I don't know if any um, classical scholars would even go so would go so far as to say that there is no Roman culture. There is merely the mechanisms by which they preserved Greek culture. But do you, do you think that there is still like a respectable Roman cultural uh, inheritance, especially relative to the Greek? Uh, do you, or do you think that the Greeks just clearly outdid the Romans in in art and literature? And uh, I, I, I'll admit my biases here up front as someone who has read. The Aeneid, um, in about half of it in the original Latin. I, I, Bravo. Yeah, I think I took it. It was, it was not me just doing it. It was, it was right. a high school class. Right, right. I cannot agree with my own, the way I framed this question, but I'll, I'll what do you think? Well, I, um, I think there is a fantastic Latin cultural heritage. And, uh, I think that Roman culture, particularly with its struggle with the question of empire and power, um, has a lot to tell us, and law has a lot to tell us that Greek culture doesn't. The Aeneid really is one of the all-time great books. Uh, uh, Horace is a poet beyond compare, Catullus, Livy. Um, Cicero's speeches are extraordinary, and Caesar, Caesar's um, <laughs> Gallic War and the Civil War just... Such masterpieces of propaganda. Mm-hmm. I described the Gallic War as the first campaign book. I think it really was, in a sense. Um, and there are few books that that try to sell a politician <laughs> better than, <laughs> than that book does. However, you know, I think that when all is said and done, I do think that the Greek cultural heritage is way up there in a way that uh, the Roman cultural heritage isn't. Um, and I think it's telling today, maybe not fair, but telling that the two, probably the two bestsellers of the Roman Empire were both written in Greek. First, of course, is the New Testament, yeah. uh, which is written in Greek. And second, I think, is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, also written in Greek. Hmm. Um, it's, it's strange. Now, in fairness, I think part of the reason for that is the greatness of Latin literature is that it's so polished that it's very difficult to translate. 
It's extremely difficult to translate. Yes, it is. And uh, <laughs> I can't do it anymore. <laughs> At one point, I was sort of able to, but now I've, I've lost I, it. I don't know that anyone can do it. It's, I mean, certain, I mean, I can't do it at all. I wouldn't try. But certain people can do it better than others. But it's very difficult because it is so concise. It is so terse. Um, um, it's it's very difficult to translate. So, uh, in odd ways, something like Homer or Plato are easier to translate into English than, than Caesar or Cicero is not so difficult, but Caesar or Horace, very difficult to translate. Well, once you find the verb, Cicero's. Uh, <laughs> Cicero's yeah, you gotta okay. find the verb, but Cicero, uh, writes in a very expansive style, uh, that makes it a little bit more user friendly and a little bit, um, makes more sense to us. I think that Caesar is very difficult to, to get it to work in English because it's just very terse. Mm-hmm. And Horace, likewise. Yeah. So I, since I we're talking about the Aeneid, I, I have to ask uh, the the controversial question about the Aeneid. Yeah. So there there is an interpretation out there advanced by I think most famously Michael Putnam uh-huh. uh, that the Aeneid is actually so it's understood as a as a sort of like a work of propaganda. That's sort of that's why it was certainly why it was commissioned by right. Augustus. Right. But there is a there is a theory that there are certain aspects of the Aeneid. Um, Specifically, the the end of book six, the the way that Aeneas leaves the underworld through the gate of false dreams, mm-hmm. that are meant to suggest that um, it's there's a bit more complication that, that there's an element of of tragedy to Rome's uh, success to its empire. Um, that th- this is not all just a glorious enterprise. There are there are bad things that come of this, um, but we'll never know because the Aeneid was never actually completely finished. It was. Is it accurate to say it was kind of a first draft almost? It wasn't, <laughs> I don't, it wasn't, no, it's not a first draft. Yeah, but more there, accurate. It's more finished than that. Okay. So, but there are, there are bits and there's like, I think two famous bits where there's like an unfinished sentence. Right. Um, or unfinished verse. Right. Uh, but anyway, what do you, do you think, what do you think of, do you come down anywhere on this debate? Do you think that there, are, there, are, there are elements of the Aeneid that are, that are meant to suggest this or do you think? Oh, that, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we have to remember that Augustus was not you know, just anybody. He was an extremely highly educated person. Uh, he was fluent in Greek literature. When he conquered Alex, when he conquered Alexandria, he enters the town and he addresses the Greek citizen population of Alexandria in the gymnasium. So the center of Greek culture. And he speaks to them in Greek. Um, Augustus is a person, uh, with a sense of irony. Um, he is not, um, he is not a two-dimensional person at all. And famously on his deathbed, he's supposed to have said something like, have I played my part well in the comedy of life? Hmm. I think Augustus understands uh, just how terrible power is and how ironic uh, it is. I don't think, I think he's a man with not many illusions. And I think he would have appreciated Virgil's depth and the degree to which Virgil's poem is... <sighs> shall we say, discreetly asking questions about what's it all about. I don't think Augustus is going to want a rah-rah uh, poem from Virgil or a rah-rah epic, but rather I think he he would have thought that he, Augustus, would be better remembered if someone had wrote an imperishable work that presents the complexity of human life because 
life is very complex. And I think that's one of the reasons we still love the Aeneid. Oh, yeah. Um, and thank goodness that that work stayed with us because that's not what, that's not no. what Virgil wanted. He wanted it uh, destroyed. That's right. He wanted it destroyed. Yeah. Uh, who ignored him on that? Do you know? Like, who, who, who insisted that it not be destroyed? Uh, I want to say Mycenaeus, but I'm not. Okay. Well, sure. th- we should thank Mycenaeus then. Yeah. Um, and the la- last question, this will kind of bring us right. full circle here. Um, what have the Romans ever done for us? Like, why, <laughs> why is it that, I mean, this is, we, here we are 1500 years after the, the real end of the, of the Western Roman Empire. And yet we're still, you have this book out, we're still doing a podcast right, on it. Right. People are still, there are movies about, out, out yeah. about it every year. And I have to mention as an aside, I am shocked that you do not have Russell Crowe killing Commodus. <laughs> I, I was, I swore that that's what, I, I thought I know, that's what happened. I know, but yes. I guess it, the, it improved on the, they improved on the reality. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the sources are still debating. Um, yes. but, but anyway, so why, what ultimately do you think accounts for the fascination among Lay people among educated people. I mean, among the founders of America, among right. classical, uh, or not classical, but like Renaissance humanists. Everyone is obsessed with Rome. Why? Because Rome is the great lost might have been. You know, Rome in some sense is the garden that we were expelled from. Rome is the great Western empire, you know, when the world was united from Britain to the edge of Iraq and including all every place in the Mediterranean. Um, and again and again, Western rulers have tried to recreate this in some sense. Eastern rulers have as well. Uh, the Byzantines, the Muslims, um, Charlemagne, uh, the whole notion of the Holy Roman Empire, the unification of Europe. Yeah, um, the, the idea of one, of, a, of one Europe has stayed with Europe like throughout this whole time. And it, you think that's a Roman inheritance? Certainly. And the European Union. I mean, if you look at the difference between Europe and China, the West and China, I mean, they're very similar, except the Chinese have managed to keep an empire through most of their history in one form or another. It's changed in many ways. But the difference in the West is that they didn't survive in the West. Instead, you got these separate kingdoms. But there's always the shadow looking over people that there's supposed to be one thing, one center. Um, I mean, just think of, in religion, just think of the Catholic Church, uh, in some sense, uh, a Roman legacy. Mm-hmm. But also, as you know, for the founders of America, uh, Rome is ide- the ideal republic. It's the ideal of republicanism. Uh, the philosophers that they'd worked, uh, they had influenced them, Montesquieu, think of, for instance, uh, looked at the Roman Republic as what a republic ought to be. And so this is leaves such a deep imprint on them and leaves a deep imprint on the institutions of the United States, the Capitol, the Senate, the Council mm-hmm. of Elders. Um, so uh, president is a Latin word. I mean, it's just so deeply in, entrenched. And then, again, you know, living in um, a large, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, diverse society struggling with identity – it's hard not to look back at the Romans and say, wow, they dealt with similar issues. Not the same, and they dealt with it in different ways, but they dealt with some similar issues. So it's hard not to go back to them and say, huh, history does seem to be cyclical in some odd sort of way. So Yeah, yeah, I think. Plus, finally, let's not forget, they're so bad. They're just so bad. It's an outlet to allow us to think about people who are just bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of history. <laughs> I mean, not more than. I mean, it seems kind of silly to say that, but I, what I mean is that there's more. 
It's almost like that era produced more history than actually just the years that it occupied. Well, but they were also masters of propaganda, and that's yeah. the other thing. Yeah, and it's it, that that could account for some of their staying power as well. Well, all right. Well, th- I think that's the last real question I have. Uh, thank you, Barry Strauss, for joining me on this journalist episode of The Remnant. Again, the book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. And I forgot to mention this at the beginning, so I'll mention this now. You have your own podcast, right? Yes. So it's called Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. And That's right. And is that, is that av- available? All, uh, it's available on all major platforms, you know, uh, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. Yep, all the places that The Remnant is available. So you should subscribe to both places, tell, both, or tell your friends about both podcasts. And that's really all I have. Uh, thank you again. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for tolerating this journalist episode of The Remnant. Uh, thank you, listeners, for doing it and for letting me indulge my uh, my classical nerd side. I have many. I have many nerd sides, as it turns out. Um, but I, I don't. I think that we have covered. We have covered. <laughs> we've covered Rome. What else is there to talk about? That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a good place to end. So uh, absolutely. Uh, th- so that's it. Goodbye. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble. Give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Come on! Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance. Um, all right. Might as well get started. Great. Um, sorry, I'm not used to Jonah not being here. This is kind of wild. Uh, but I'll get used to it. Do you want to take out a cigar? <laughs> no, that's okay. I... If I wanted to smell cigars, I would just go go near his desk and right. be able to smell them. Hey. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.